give to Abraham to bless the nations through him and to give him an offspring more numerable than he could ever count. Father, you've done all this in Christ and we give you the glory for it. Father, we pray that you would continue to work life in us by the life-giving power of your word. Father, may the Spirit apply it to our hearts. May you overcome our tendency to sinfully harden our hearts towards the hearing of your word, to put off the Spirit-given conviction, to make ourselves believe that this message is for someone else. Father, help us, help all of us to see the ways in which we need to be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with you today. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. was once the foundation of society itself is now crumbling and under attack. And what I'm speaking of here is the family. In previous generations, even pagans understood the value and the importance of family life. But today, few think there's any importance to a husband and a wife and children living in loving harmony, let alone peaceful coexistence. Now, all bets are off with so-called families taking all kinds of perverse forms. But as God's people, we are called to glorify God with every part of our lives. And this morning, we want to see what it means for us to glorify God with our families. Each person here today has a role to play in bringing full glory to God in the family, from the oldest of us to the youngest of us. And so we want to take the time to see what God says through Paul and his word about how husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, and children are all to come together in this thing called the family and bring glory to God. This morning we're going to take, we're going to take on in one sermon what probably would normally be five or six if I was preaching through Ephesians. And so, uh, frankly, I just want to get right to it because we've got a lot to cover this morning. So I would encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I begin reading Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Actually, let's back up, go ahead and back up to verse 21, and we'll see there that uh, as Paul begins this next section, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, it's divided the way that it is because really this should go with uh, what follows. Paul ends by telling the Ephesian believers in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now he goes on to tell you how it is appropriate for us to submit to one another out of reverence, Christ, for, in reverence to Christ. And he begins in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. May God bless the reading of His Word. This morning we want to see four things that will be displayed in a family that brings glory to God. And if we just pause, and uh, if you look and see here, uh, fellas, you're going to take the brunt of the blast this morning. Because uh, Paul gives just a couple verses to wives there at the beginning, and then from verses 25 to 33, it's all about you as husbands and how you're to treat your wife. And then in a couple verses there in chapter 6, children, you'll be addressed, and then it comes back to you again, men, as fathers, and how you are to raise your children alongside the helpmate that God has given you in your wife. And so, um, so put your belts on. And as... Uh, uh, Vody Bauckham says, if at some point you can't say amen, say ouch. All right? <laughs> the first thing that we should see, the first thing we see from this passage is that God-glorifying families will display helpful submission. God-glorifying families will display helpful submission. Not just among people generally in the world, but even among Christians in America to say such a thing that I have just said as the first point for this sermon, the first thing that we should see, the first thing that God-glorifying families will display is thought to be narrow-minded and outdated. In fact, in one very large church near Chicago, uh, they have a policy that basically says there's, there's no such thing as submission within a marriage relationship. Wives are co-equal in every way with men. And the result of that teaching is such that in one of their discipleship classes is required for every student to purchase Grudem's uh, excellent book, if I may say, book on systematic theology. However, because in that systematic theology he teaches a complementarian view of marriage, that is, that wives should submit to their husbands, as Paul says, they're not allowed to sell that book actually in the church. And so the teacher has to pull his car up to the front door and pop his trunk and sell the books out of that. I think there's something, something fundamentally wrong with that, isn't there? There's still some that would be a little more honest, a little more sensible on the outside when it comes to the Bible, and they would say, you know, the Bible does teach wives being submissive to their husbands. I mean, after all, you can't get around it, can you? However, because that issue has been so abused and so misunderstood in the past, we should just put it behind us and not make an issue of it. We shouldn't teach it. We shouldn't stand upon it. We should just forget about it. My reply to that is simply this. Do you really want to remove some part of God's word simply because it has been abused, misunderstood, or cuts across our current sensibilities? Frankly, if you, if, if you really want to do that, then, then this is not the church, the, the Unitarian Universalist church down the road. That's the one you want to be at because they don't believe anything, frankly, of any substance because it might offend someone. If we... If we want to know what the Bible says, though, from the outset, we will see, it's clear from our passage, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Paul can't get any clearer than that. 
And the fact that later he will root this in creation itself says this is not some, some cultural thing with Paul in the first century with the Jews or the Greeks. No, this is a biblical, eternal, transcultural principle that Paul is giving us here. But the question is, what does Paul mean by submission? Well, let me begin by telling you what it doesn't mean. Okay, these are these are some some common misunderstood things both in the church and outside the church about what submission is, and so I'm I'm wanting to correct that now. Submission does not mean that women have less intelligence or competence. You may have heard the joke about Ginger Rogers, right? She could do everything Fred Astaire could do, just backwards and on heels. You know what I'm talking about there? If you're not a fan of old movies, then it just it, it went over your head. But if you know what I'm talking about, uh, then, then you get that. And frankly, that's the kind of thing that takes place in the home very often. Sometimes the wife may be more competent at certain things than her husband. And according to Genesis 1 and 2, both are made in the image of God. Both have equal worth as God's image bearers, but both are called to fulfill distinct and different roles within the marriage relationship. And those roles don't have anything to do with intelligence or competence. In fact, if you remember 1 Peter 3, Peter says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. You see what Peter is saying here? Peter assumes that the wives may be more spiritually on the ball, more spiritually competent, closer to God than their husbands. And so he's saying here implicitly that her role in the family has nothing to do with her competence or her intelligence. Secondly, submission does not mean the husband is an absolute authority. Submission does not mean the husband is an absolute authority. Here I simply mean that wives should not feel compelled to give in to all their husband's demands, specifically if it involves sin. If your husband is making a decision that's sinful, if he's asking you to take part in a decision that's sinful, you, you, you say, no, thank you. You're not my ultimate authority. We'll get to it in a minute. You are to be my leader, but you're not my ultimate authority. Christ is my ultimate authority. So if your husband would say, honey, I'm having a hard time with the taxes. The taxes. Can you sit down and help me with the math so we get more back than what we really deserve? He'd say, no. He'd say, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, it could be all manner of other kinds of things. It could be more subtle than that. But you, you say, honey, I would love to submit to your leadership here. But I believe that the way you're leading us is contrary to the word of God. And so I have to say, I can't do it. Third, submission does not mean giving up independent thought. It's interesting that nowhere in the New Testament does any apostle write to men and say, make your wives submit. Instead, God thinks so much of you ladies that in inspiring the writers of the New Testament, he moves them to write directly to you. He expects you to be able to think for yourself, to understand what he is saying, to live like a disciple of Jesus Christ, to not shut your mouth and turn off your mind while your husbands are around. He goes directly to you and say, now here's how I want you to relate to your husbands. He's expecting independent thinking from you ladies. Lastly, submission does not mean a wife should lose her identity to her husband. Submission does not mean a wife should lose her identity to her husband. A few years ago, a book came out called The Surrendered Wife, not a Christian book. And in an interview promoting the book, the author explained that to improve her marriage, she stopped nagging, complaining, criticizing, and doing anything that would upset her husband whether it was rational or not. Instead, she gave him every responsibility in the marriage, the finances, 
the, 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 the paying of bills, the, the maintenance of the cars, the maintenance of the house, everything, she gave him that responsibility on how to decide what to do. She was with him in the marriage bed whenever he wanted. She always let him choose the restaurants and make every other decision in their family. This is surrendering, but the Bible doesn't call us to that. The Bible calls wives to submit, not surrender. Submit. What does Paul mean? It means you can disagree with your husband on things like, what does this Bible passage mean? It means you can disagree with your husband on who to vote for. It means it's okay to disagree with your husband on what movie to watch or, or, or where to go on a, on a Friday night. It doesn't mean that your identity becomes lost and out of your husband and that you just go along like a mindless drone with whatever he decides. That's not what submission biblically is all about. So what does Paul mean when he speaks of wives submitting to their husbands. In a word, it means letting them lead. It means letting husbands lead. It means willingly letting husbands take leadership in the home and bear the responsibility that comes with it. In their excellent book entitled Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, John Piper and Wayne Groom explain it this way. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. Yet she submits out of reverence for Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 5.21. In our passage, Paul says, submit as to the Lord. This doesn't mean your husband is like your Lord. It means that you submit as an act of worship and obedience to the Lord. More than that, submitting is actually a help to your husband. That's why this point is called helpful submission. In Genesis 1, that Paul grounds this, this passage in talking about from creation that male and female are meant to be one flesh. The Bible talks about God making for the man a woman who is to be his helper. And submitting to his leadership is going to help your husband spiritually, ladies. You say, how is that going to happen? Because submitting to his leadership is going to help him feel the weight that he needs to carry in the marriage. When you say, honey, take the lead, you're putting godly pressure on him to realize the full weight of his responsibilities under God to provide godly leadership. So wives, when you submit to your husbands, you help him become a better husband and the kind of man that God desires him to be. People say, well, what, about, what about husbands that aren't saved? What about husbands that are ungodly? Do I still submit? And again, we go to First Peter and guess what? Yeah, you do. Why? Because it is a testimony to your loyalty to Christ. And the goal, Peter says, is and again, the same rules apply. If he's asking you to do something sinful, you say, no, I can't do that. But in every other way, you give him the leadership. And Paul says this will be a testimony to him that perhaps may bring him to an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about why that is the case in just a few minutes. My point here is simply to say this. Wise, if you display helpful submission within the home, then God will be glorified in your family you will help your husband be the kind of man that God wants him to be. But what kind of man does God want husbands to be? This is the second thing that should be displayed in God-glorifying families. Number two, God-glorifying families will display, display loving leadership. Loving leadership. Isn't it amazing that Paul has to tell husbands to love their wives? I mean, just stop and think about that. 
Husbands, love your wives. Okay, that's kind of a no-brainer. Well, if it's a no-brainer, then men apparently have no brains because Paul has to tell them, love your wives. Furthermore, wives have just been told to submit, but Paul doesn't tell husbands, rule over them. Instead, he says, you must love her. The key here, the key to leadership in the home is this idea of love. If you want to be the leader that God calls you to be, men, then you will love your wife. If you want your wife to fulfill her, her uh, goal, her, her design in marriage to submit to your leadership, then you won't command her to submit. Instead, you will love her. And in loving her, you will create within her a desire to submit. If you're the kind of husband God calls you to be, your wife won't have any problem submitting to your leadership. But if you're a joke as a husband, then yeah, your marriage won't be what it should be and your wife is going to have difficulty submitting to your leadership. The relationship will be strained. So Paul's advice that I commend to you, husbands, love your wives. But don't just love them because love can mean anything today. Paul very specifically tells us how we should love our wives. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so here he tells us, first of all, that husbands, we are to love our wives with a love rooted in the Savior. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know, part of who we are as human beings and part of our makeup, uh, all of us, is, is that we often learn by following someone else's example. For instance, when we're little, we don't give our kids a book on how to tie their shoes, do we? We sit down and we tie our shoes in front of them. We help them uh, do the mechanics and they follow our example. And this goes all the way up, doesn't it? When you get hired at a new job, do they sit you down with a a 500-page manual and say, this is everything you're going to have to know about this job, read it and come back in a week and be ready to start? No, they say, you work with this guy for the next week and you watch what he does and you follow his example, right? I mean, that, that is an intrinsically, as humans, how we learn. It doesn't mean that we don't supplement that with books and learning, but fundamentally, we follow an example. Now, we can follow a good example, but we can also follow a bad example. And what Paul is warning here is not, don't follow the bad example, guys. Don't follow the plethora of bad examples that are out there today. You see, it's not enough to try and understand how to be a husband by, by going to the book section at Walmart or strolling through Barnes & Noble or even the local Christian bookstore and just picking up a book on marriage and what it means to be a husband. Because all those things are going to be a waste if they don't ultimately point you to Christ and say, follow the example of Christ in being a good husband. Follow the example of Christ in loving your wife. Paul says, do you want to know how to love your wife? Then look to Christ. Look how he loved the church. Look how he loved his people. And if we do that, if we look to Christ, we're going to see two things. We're going to see a love rooted in sacrifice. Love, uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A supreme act of Christ's love for the church is his willingness to die for her. Jesus left the glories of heaven and took on human flesh. More than that, he identified with humanity in its sinfulness and then willingly offered himself as a sacrifice that sinful people might be declared and made righteous and brought into right relationship with God. Christ willingly sacrificed himself for his bride, the church. Husbands, what have you done for your wife lately? Now, now granted, most of you, 
Most of you, if not all of you, will never be able to physically give your life up to save your wife's. And none of you will be able to atone for her sins like Christ did for his brides. But there is still a principle of sacrifice here. A principle that says her needs come before my needs. Making sure she is happy and feels love and respect that comes before what I want to do with my time. Friends, hobbies, sports, cars, books, internet, all of these things take a back seat to your wife. It doesn't mean you can't do those things. It just says you have to be willing to give up anything and everything if it means showing genuine love to your wife. The second thing that we see here is not just a, a sanctifying love, we also see, or excuse me, a, a sacrificing love, we also see a sanctifying love. Love your wives, Paul says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ is not simply content to save a people out of the mire and muck and destruction of sin. He desires to save them by his righteousness so that he can cause them to imitate his righteousness. In justification, we have been declared not guilty. We have been declared holy in Christ. And now, through the process of sanctification, God says, I'm going to make you what I have declared you to be. I'm going to begin purging the filth of sin out of your life, cleansing you to be the perfect, radiant, from sin, virginal bride for Christ on the day of his return. Now, very often on the weekends, on Saturdays and sometimes on Sundays, everyone in the house wipes out for nappy time except for me. And as I'm sitting there thinking, because I, and the reason why I, I would love to take a nap, but typically what happens if I take a nap, I am so exhausted from preaching on, on Sunday mornings that I can't get my brain together and I'm fuzzy on Sunday nights. And especially trying to lead a small group or something that's kind of like, what was the question again? What book are we reading? And it doesn't go well. But I find myself very often on those Saturday and Sunday afternoons sitting there thinking I want to do something, but I'm too tired to really be productive. And I'm awake enough. I know I don't want to go to sleep enough that, that um, I, I, I don't want to go to sleep. And so uh, I find myself flipping through television trying to find something to occupy my brain. And invariably, the only thing that's on during one of those hour times is either golf, which I don't, it's fine to play, but to watch, no thanks. Boring. Okay, that will put me to sleep. But the infomercials. The infomercials. I'm thinking, who in the world, you know, who's buying this stuff? That these guys keep putting this thing on there. And the thing that it always cracks me up is, is the blemish cream. You know what I'm talking about? You know, it just makes, it makes the years walk away, right? So, that, so you'll, you'll look years younger. And they always have those, those pictures of some person that, that looks like the old hag, you know, off of, uh, you know, the menagerie in Star Trek with just all the crumpled up. And then she looks like a supermodel after putting the cream on her face for two weeks. And you're thinking, oh, come on, you know, uh, who's doing the airbrushing in those pictures, right? Well, as silly as that thing is, as silly as those things are, and, and, and as much as I doubt they work a lick, frankly, that's the image that Paul has here. Paul is taking the image of, of a woman's physical face and is broken down with age and has been pockmarked with time and wrinkled. And he's saying that, that spiritually speaking, Christ is sanctifying. He is cleansing that. He is purifying it out. He is wiping away those blemishes so that when he returns, he will find a bride not stained with the time and the wickedness of sin, but he will find a bride that is pure and holy, 
and righteous. Paul is saying also, husbands, just like Jesus' concern for his bride, the church, so also we must likewise be concerned with the spiritual welfare of our wives. Just as Christ takes the word and washes his people, the church, so also, husbands, we have a responsibility also to take up the word of God and help in that cleansing process with our wives. We have the responsibility of making sure they are growing spiritually. This is one of the things that just kills me when people get up and say, well, my faith is a, is a private thing. No, it's not. it's not. It's not just communal in the church. But if you are a man, you have deep and passionate responsibilities, first of all, to your wife. You must ensure that she is growing spiritually. You must lead her into the process of sanctification. That means you must do things like encourage her to spend time with God. Maybe you, one night you do the work for her so she can get away. You make a point of doing Bible study with your wife and with your family. Nothing elaborate. Just sit down and read the text and talk about it and pray. Pray for your wives and for her spiritual development. Pray with your wives so she can hear the desire of your heart for her to be holy and sanctified. You yourselves try and live up to the standards God has set for your life in terms of holiness and loving your wife. And when you fail, apologize to your wife. Confess it as sin. And I guarantee you that her affection for you will not only increase, but her desire to follow your lead and to pursue her own sanctification will increase. Being concerned for your wife's spiritual health is part of marriage because it's an example that Christ gave us. Just as God's people are called the body of Christ, Christ loves that body. So Paul says in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hates his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the body because we are members of his body. Man, you need to do anything and everything you can to help contribute to your wife's spiritual life. And just as Christ continues to sanctify us through His Spirit and the Word, we must seek to help our lives reflect the inner beauty of godliness. And that this kind of love flows out of what Paul has earlier said about headship in the home. He said, wives are to submit because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Headship ultimately is about leadership. It's not about ruling It's not about self-interest. It's not about superiority. It's not about issuing commands. It's It's not about making every decision in the home. It's about responsibility. It's about serving. It's about gentleness and godliness and teaching. It's about being a leader, a leader who leads like Christ, a leader whose motivations are driven by sacrificial, sanctifying love. It's important that by God's grace, we get this right, man. Because Paul says our marriage is about more than just us. In verse 38, he says, The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen here. Listen to what he is saying. Christ and the church is not an analogy to help us understand marriage. Marriage itself was created by God to help us understand the relationship between Christ and the church. God created male and female to be wed forever, one lifetime, one flesh, so that we would understand something about Christ's atoning work for His people. So if we fail in our role as husbands, it will make it harder for us and for others to understand, appreciate, and proclaim the gospel. 
Men, if you fail to love your wives in a godly way, then your life betrays and contradicts the truths of the gospel you claim to believe. Therefore, husbands, let's stop playing the fool and start playing the man. Let's end the juvenile antics and loveless pretension and by God's grace start imitating Christ. Amen, please. Amen, men. Come on. This is our role. I want to hear from the women. I know the women want to say amen. I want the men to say, this is what we want for our lives. We want to imitate our Savior. We want to be men, not pansies who follow the example of the world. Let's pray for and work hard at being godly men who know how to lead and love their wives. And then, then God will be glorified in our families. Third, God-glorifying families will display willing obedience. God-glorifying families will display willing obedience. Before I get to the kids, parents, let me talk to you one more time. Husbands and wives together here. Notice in verse 1, Paul tells children to obey their parents. And he cites one of the Ten Commandments of support for this. And remember in Exodus 20, God told Israel, Honor your father and mother that your days will be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. That's what he quotes. And you have to understand that that comes as the fifth of the Ten Commandments. And those words may sound familiar to us, but do not let them glaze over us. Stop and hang on that word honor. Understand what that means. What does it mean to honor your parents? What does it mean for children to honor their parents? The word honor means to prize highly, to show respect, to glorify and exalt. In Psalm 86, 9, we are told, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify, same word, honor, your name. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is this. God has spent the first three commandments saying, Don't honor anybody else. Don't honor anybody else. Just honor me. You shall know the gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, a jealous God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't honor anybody else and don't dishonor me. And now the fifth commandment, he says, honor your parents. What in the world is going on with that? God, are, are, you, are you experiencing some dementia? No. No, in fact, God knows exactly what he is doing. And it's this. Take a two-year-old, take a three-year-old, take a ten-year-old. How do you explain God to them? How do you explain God to them? Do you, do you give them a lecture? Do you pull out charts? I don't. I'm not that smart. My kids are probably smart enough to do that. But no, why? It goes back to how we learn. How would you, let's forget God for a second. How would you explain justice? How would you explain mercy? How do you explain love? How do you explain those things to kids? You, you don't, you, you don't, again, you don't give them a lecture about it. What do you do? You tell them a story, don't you? You tell them a story that illustrates justice. You tell them a story that illustrates mercy. And what happens? They get it. They get it. They see what? By example. And God is here saying in this, implicitly in this fifth command, parents, your children are to honor you because until they reach a point where they are able to think more abstractly and latch on to faith for themselves and grow in the understanding of this, you are to represent God to them. You are to be the example. So when they say, when they say what is God like? What does it mean that, that, that he shepherds his people? So we'll say to them, does your daddy shepherd you? Yeah. Oh, I get it. That's what God is like. Are you feeling the weight of this yet, moms and dads? 
You are to be the living example and testimony of what God is like to your children. And that is why children are called to honor you. Frankly, that should make every one of us that's a parent shudder. More than that, though, it should cause us to be all the more determined to know God's grace in our lives and experience His transforming work. We should seek to to know God earnestly for ourselves so that our lives will reflect His character, that we can give them an appropriate example to follow, to see, and to understand who God is by. Now, young people, what about you? What does the Bible say to you? Little ones here, little ones in the back, teenagers, what does the Bible say to you? Well, very simply, obey your parents, right? Isn't that what it says? But why should you obey your parents, young people? Paul tells us that you should obey your parents for two reasons. First, he more or less says it's the right thing to do. It's just common sense. Everyone knows you should obey your parents. In fact, when he says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, Paul is here saying that even people who don't know God, even people who don't go to church, people all around the world, they understand you're supposed to obey mommy and daddy. Think about it. I would say you understand this too, young people. If you say, can I, can I go get a cookie? And your mommy says, no. Does that make you angry sometimes? You really want that cookie? Yeah, yeah. And if you disobey mommy or daddy and you go get the cookie and you get caught, do you know you're doing wrong? Yeah, yeah, you do know that you're doing wrong. And so Paul says, you just know inherently because God has put it in your heart. You know you should obey mommy and daddy. But then it gives a little more nuanced argument for some of you teenagers. He says, it's not just common sense, it's God's will. He quotes from the Old Testament. says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the, ma- in the land. For the old covenant people of God, Israel, obedience and honoring parents meant maintaining the covenant. If children honored their parents, it meant they were learning from them and they were not giving their worship to false gods. They were worshiping the Lord of lo- alone and they were, they were staying in the covenant that God had made with Israel. Much of this holds true for us today, young people. God wants you to obey your parents. Why? Because it will mean that you will be brought ultimately by God's grace into the covenant because the more you obey your parents, the more they, if they're doing what they're supposed to, they're going to be proclaiming the gospel to you. And in proclaiming the gospel to you, they are going to to be presenting opportunities to God to work a miracle of grace in your hearts and to bring you into faith. And the more that you continue to sit under their discipline and their discipleship, then you will learn what it means over and over and over again. Not just to submit and obey them, but to submit and obey to God. So, teenagers and young people alike, what will it look like to obey your parents? What what should your life look like? What should your attitude be? I will summarize in three words. When you obey, you are to do it immediately, completely and joyfully. Immediately, completely and joyfully. What does this mean? It means the first time mommy tells you to do it, you do it, right? The first time daddy tells you to do something, you do it, right? Right. You don't say, well, I want to finish this cartoon first or I want to play with this toy first. No, you do it the first time you're asked, you do it immediately. Secondly, you do it completely. If they say, take off your coat and take off your shoes and put them away, You don't stop with just taking the things off and leave them wherever you want, right? You complete the act. You do all of what they ask you to do. But then here's the most important thing, young people. Do it joyfully. Do it 
joyfully. When mommy and dad tells you to do something, sometimes you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. And so what do we do? Some little ones, I don't want to. Right? You throw the temper tantrum, right? Teenagers, what do you do? Slam the door, right? I mean, that's what we do, right? That's what I did. That's what everybody does. But God says, don't do that. Don't do that. God says, don't do that. You do it joyfully. You say, yes, mommy and daddy. And you know whether you understand why, whether you know why this, you should be doing this, mommy and daddy are not going to tell you anything wrong to do. And they're going to tell you to do something that is both good for you and probably good for the whole family. And so you do it joyfully. You do it with a smile on your face. And young people, if you will obey your parents like that, the Bible says ultimately you are obeying and honoring God. And God will get the glory in your family. The last thing that we want to see is that God-glorifying families will display patient discipleship. God-glorifying families will display patient discipleship. Here is another good place to pause and just say something specific about children to you adults. Paul makes an assumption here, an assumption that for the most part we have just willfully and just by virtue of our culture forgotten. And the assumption is this, married couples will have kids. And so just so there's no question about what I think the Bible clearly says about this, let me just state it very clearly. Under normal circumstances, under normal circumstances, God's will for every married couple is to have kids. You got that? Was that fuzzy at all? Or was that clear? Under normal circumstances, God's will for every couple is to have kids. See, how can I say that? Because the scripture says it. What's the very first command given to humanity in the Bible? Do you know what it is? It's not worship God. It's be fruitful and multiply. Now, could God have said to them, I'm your creator, worship me? Sure. But in his providence, in his wisdom, the first recorded command is be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And then when, frankly, we've made a mess of things and God has to more or less start over with the human race, what does he tell Noah? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9.1. Having children is part of God's design for marriage. And the rest of Scripture celebrates children as a gift from God. Psalm 127. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gates. Some people, some people who even have kids, act like they don't, they don't like kids. They don't want kids around. They have nothing to do with kids. Well... That's sinful, and here's why. Yeah, you heard it, sinful, and here's why. In Mark 10, Jesus said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such is the kingdom of God. The children later are giving, are giving God Jesus praise, whether they know what they're doing or not. And, and they're all like, why are you doing that? And he's like, don't you understand? Don't you understand how precious and beautiful that is? If Jesus' example for us to follow in every other way also says, let the children come. Children should make you happy. Children should make you joyful. You should lavish affection on them. Not in a way that spoils them, but in a way that is good and right and true. Then who are we to not follow the example of Jesus? Amen? Or ouch, whichever it is, say it. Because there it is in black and white. The only circumstance where I believe it is, is not God's will for a couple is when they are physically incapable of having children. The other possible one would be if they say, what parents who can't have kids should say is, we're going to adopt. 
We're gonna, God has blessed us financially, and we're going to adopt every single kid that we possibly can. And if that's the reason why you don't want to have biological children, then you go for it. But in every other way, I believe God's will very clearly is for mothers and fathers to come together and to be fruitful and multiply and to embrace the joy that God says children are in this world. But what do you do with the kids once you have them? What do you do with the kids once you have them? Easy. You disciple them. You disciple them. Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. First, Paul says, do not provoke your children to anger. What's, why, why this? Think of all the things you could have said for fathers not to do. Don't provoke them to violence. Do not tempt them to sin. Do not indulge them. But he doesn't say any of those things. He says, don't provoke them to anger. Why? Because anger is often our response to authority, isn't it? As sinful people, we are rebels at heart rejecting not just God's authority, but any authority. We don't like authority. We don't like bosses telling us what to do. And children don't like parents telling them what to do. And basically, Paul is saying, look, dads, you're going to already have an uphill battle with your kids. Because of the sinfulness of their hearts, they want to reject authority. And so don't you do anything that's going to exacerbate the problem. You avoid you avoid behavior that's going to cause your children to, ref- to, to get angry at you and your parenting. Sometimes, frankly, it's just a sinful attitude of our children. After all, isn't God the father of us and don't we sometimes get angry? But has he ever done anything to actually warrant anger from us? No. No. Nevertheless, as parents, we do things. Sometimes cause our kids to get angry at us unnecessarily. And Paul says, avoid them. I would just give you some practical advice here and say avoid things like yelling. Save that for when something really, really terrible has been done. Avoid unjust and excessive punishment. Avoid hypocrisy. Verbal put-downs. Those are the kind of things that cause kids to get angry. Instead, he says, don't anger them. Don't make them mad at you. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instead of angering their hearts, he says, win their hearts. Win their hearts by setting that godly example and by pointing them to God himself. And he says part of that is going to require that you discipline your kids, that you punish what is ultimately their sinful disobedience. You don't let your kids do whatever they want. That's not God's plan for a family. God's plan for a family does not involve the kids being king. And I've seen families like that. I've seen where the kids just completely run around and do whatever they want and no one says anything about them and I just say, heaven help them when they're teenagers. It's not going to go well with them. In fact, it's cruel and unusual and sinful for the parents to do that. Not least of which because Paul here very clearly says, discipline your kids in the Lord. Discipline in a way that honors God. But when you do that, when you point their sin out to them, don't forget to tell them about the Savior. Don't forget to tell them about the Savior. Frankly, this was, this was not something that I always did. It's not something that was even in my frame of reference. And I'll say that until they're older. And, and, and thankfully, God reoriented my thinking in that way. Virtually every time I have to say, don't do that, you're disobeying, this is the punishment. I also want to come in and say, all of us deserve punishment for the things that we do. Daddy still does bad things. Mommy still does bad things. And God is going to give a far worse punishment because every time we do bad things against mommy or daddy or brother and sister, we're doing it against God as well. But God has also provided a Savior so that we can have forgiveness for the bad things that we do. 
And that flows naturally into the second part of Paul's twofold command. Don't just discipline them in the Lord. Bring them up in instruction of the Lord. Teach your children about God. Teach your children the Bible. Teach them how to think about the world the way a Christian should think about the world. Above all else, teach them to put their hope in God. That hope in anything else is ultimately hopelessness. And frankly, this isn't hard. It just requires time. And that, I I fear, is is what we hate the most. I've got to give up time doing something else I would like to do to discipline and instruct my children in the things of the Lord. Sit down at dinner. Sit down at bedtime. Take 15 minutes. Read a Bible story and explain it. Sing a song. Pray a prayer. And then you're done. It's It's not hard. It's a matter of saying, this is what God commands me to do, and I'm going to be obedient to it. Disciple your kids instruct them in the things of God when they get older be more involved and don't feel like well I don't know how to do that I don't, I don't, I don't know how to teach. There, are, there are more resources available today for this kind of thing we have no excuse for not doing this now at least of which a pastor you can call up and say now three pastors I don't understand what this Bible passage is about give me some help here how do I help a three year old understand this it's been done before it's exciting because I know guess what now I've got something else I put in my belt so when my kids get to that passage, whoop, I've already thought about this. Here it is. God commands that we disciple our kids, and so we must do it. We must discipline them the way God would have us discipline them, and we must instruct them in the way that God would have us instruct them. And if we do that, then God will be glorified in the family. Loved ones, I am always amazed at how people react when you do something nice for them. Two instances just the last two weeks. One, I was at a coffee shop and somebody dropped this, a lady dropped a bunch of papers and she was on the opposite side of the counter. So I just bent down and picked them up and laid it there and she was just absolutely gobsmacked that I would bend down and pick those papers up for her. And I'm thinking, you know, why wouldn't I? In fact, if, if, I, if my mom was there with me and I hadn't done that, she'd have jumped up because she's pretty short. She'd have jumped up, whacked me in the back of the head and said, why don't you pick those papers up, young man? It's just what you do, right? And then it, it, then it went from just being amazed to suspicious. Then she was looking at it like, what's he trying to pull? And I thought, we can't even be nice to somebody anymore. We can't, even, we, can't even, we can't even show common decency and respect. And then here's the other, the other thing that happened to me. Going into the bookstore, and there's an older couple coming up. And again, mama trained her boy well. You open the door and you wait and you let the old folks go through first, right? I mean, isn't that normal, common courtesy? Isn't that what you're supposed to do, just be nice? And guess what happens? Guess what happens? Then another couple comes in. Okay. And then, then another group of teenagers come in. And then a, a, another couple comes in. And then, and then finally a guy comes in talking on a cell phone. The whole time no one stops to think, I'll get the door, you go ahead and go on in. No, no, no. It's, it's take advantage of it. And that's how, that's how, that's how we view things these days. The, the, the response is inherently selfishness. That the response is inherently selfish and reveals the selfishness of our hearts because all those people are thinking, I wouldn't pick up those papers. Why is he doing it for me? He must be up to something. Or, hey, look, there's a guy holding the door. I don't care if he's freezing cold in 20-degree weather and wants to get inside. I want to run in there and while he's holding the door. And folks, let me just say, those two things are evidence of why we don't have families that are glorified by God. It's because we're all selfish. Children don't want to obey their parents. They want to do what they want to do. They're selfish. Husbands don't want to love their wives because they want to love themselves more. They're selfish. 
Husbands don't want to submit to their husbands because they want to be the leaders. They're selfish. Selfish, 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 selfish. And through it all, Christ stands there as the one supremely unselfish. He said, I'm going to give up everything I can possibly give up. From the glories of heaven that I, I rightfully deserve to my modesty hanging nude on a cross for people who don't deserve it. And if we want to glorify God in our families, if we want God to be magnified, if we want people to look at our families and say, what is this about? And ultimately we can say, we want God to be made much of. And we will forget the selfishness of our hearts. We will ask God to give us grace that we need to cleanse us from that sin of selfishness. And we will follow the kind of plan that Paul has laid out here. We will see helpful submission. We will see loving leadership. We will see joyful obedience and patient discipleship. And if those things are evidence in our home, then we will have a family that glorifies God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so desperately want to bring you honor and glory with our lives. Father, we know that to do that is going to mean to stand against the culture. Sadly, not just the culture of this world, but very often the culture of our churches. That in their selfishness to not seem odd to the culture, to not suffer ridicule, they've abandoned your plan for the family. Father, I pray that won't be said of us. Father, I pray that we would be seeking earnestly your strength and your wisdom. The transforming work of your spirit in our hearts that we might be able to fulfill the roles that you have called us to fulfill. That you have called us to live out in the context of our families. And that, Father, we will do this not because it is easy, but because it is right. And in doing the right thing, Father, we will find ourselves most happy most joyful, most satisfied, and we will find you most glorified. It's with this in mind that we pray. Amen.